We're going to jump back into the life of David now that I'm properly hooked up, wired, and everything wise, and not just wearing it at my hip. Uh, we're going to look at this incredible life for the 14th time, and then next week, our 15th message, will conclude our study of the life of David. David lived 3,000 years ago. He lived 1,000 years before Jesus was born in Bethlehem, reigned over the nation of Israel, as we've seen. And what's fascinating to me, one of the most fascinating aspects of David's life is the number of friends he had in his life. He had all kinds of friends. I think there are more named individuals that he interacts with than any other character in scripture outside of Jesus. As a matter of fact, I asked my father-in-law, I gave him a kind of a blank Bible this week that hadn't been written in or marked up in any way and I asked him to go through and underline all the friends of David he could find and it was over five dozen named friends of David. Now, we're not going to look at all of them today, but we're going to talk about true friends as we look at a handful of David's friends and how he was their friend and how they were his friend. We live in a world that's divided. People who five, six, seven years ago were really close have been divided by political stuff, by masks and mandates and opinions over all kinds of things. We live in a world that one of our first responses is to divide from people, to consider people our enemies, to see them as something other than ourselves. And fewer and fewer of us have true friends that we can rely upon, and fewer and fewer of us are true friends in the lives of others. Doug Larson said, a true friend is one who overlooks your failures and tolerates your success. Another way that an individual put it was, a true friend is someone who sees the pain in your eyes while everyone else believes the smile on your face. Linda Grayson said, there's nothing better than a friend unless it is a friend with chocolate. (laughs) Two friends don't judge each other. They judge other people together. True friends, I should say. (laughs) This final one I really like. True friendship is when you walk into their house and your Wi-Fi connects automatically. (laughs) That's a true friend. Well, we're going to be looking at true friends. You can open your Bible. We'll begin looking at one of the core friendships of David, his friendship with Jonathan, the son of King Saul. So you can open your Bibles to 1 Samuel 18. 1 Samuel 18, we'll be there in a moment. We'll be looking at a number of different passages. You'll be able to follow along in the hard copy of your Bible. If you have a mobile device, you maybe have a Bible app like I have on my iPad, you can follow along there. I'll be reading from the New Living Translation from these passages. We'll make the, the text of the passages available on the screens. But as we talk about true friends, here's what we want to focus on. True friends may not be able to solve your problems or answer why you're going through them but they will faithfully walk with you through both the good and the bad times of your life. I don't know why it's taken me so long, but it's just in the last decade that I've realized I can't solve everybody's friends, those, or solve everybody's problems. My friends, uh, folks in the church, I can't solve all the problems. I can't even really answer why God is allowing this to happen and that to happen. But I can be present with people. I can, I can be there for them in the good or the bad times, the ups and the downs. You remember Job who suffered so much in the Old Testament. When his friends showed up, the three core friends and even the fourth friend, those guys showed up for the first seven days, the book of Job says they didn't say a word and when they didn't speak, just their presence was such a comfort to him. When it went off the rails and their friendship really showed out to be very negative is when they opened their mouths trying to reason out why or to solve the problem. Sometimes we just need friends who'll be with us in the journey and we need to be those kinds of friends. 
Who we surround ourselves in life matters. That's why we're talking about in these next couple weeks about the opportunity to be a part of a small group that meets weekly or monthly with brothers and sisters in Christ where you can pour into their lives and you can pour, they can pour into your life. We need the right kind of people around us. We're warned in scripture through the Proverbs and other passages about the damage that the wrong kind of people in our lives can do. 1 Corinthians 15, says, bad company corrupts good character. Are you bad company? Do you surround yourself with bad company? Or do you have friends who are true friends? So what are true friends? We'll see seven things from a handful of David's friends today together. Number one, true friends accept you as you are, even when you could be an irritation to them. They accept you as you are, even if you could be an irritation to them. And the first two points here about what true friends are, I want us to look at Jonathan and David, probably one of the most famous friendships of all of Scripture. They have this deep intimacy where they commit to care for one another's families if anything should happen to the other. There, there is something they share, and yet Jonathan is the son of King Saul. He, he should be the next king of Israel, but because Saul's heart had turned away from the Lord, the Lord said, I'm going to raise up somebody whose heart is aimed at me. It's going to be David. And so really, David should be a threat to Jonathan. After David defeats Goliath, you would think that Jonathan would be like, well, I, I'm here too. I, I want people to know who I am. He and Saul didn't step up. David did. And we read in 1 Samuel 18, 1 through 4, what happened after, immediately after David defeats Goliath, we read, after David was finished talking with Saul, he met Jonathan, the king's son. There was an immediate bond between them, for Jonathan loved David. From that day on, Saul kept David with him, and he wouldn't let him return home. And Jonathan made a solemn pact with David because he loved him as he loved himself. Jonathan sealed the pact by taking off his robe and giving it to David, together with his tunic, sword, bow, and belt. There's this instant friendship that comes between them. Now David marries into Saul's family, so they become brothers-in-law. But he marries into this family, and he's already got a friend in the family in Jonathan. And Jonathan takes off the things that would indicate he is the prince of Israel and puts them on David. He accepts David as this shepherd who enters into his life through the victory over Goliath. He accepts him as he is, even though he's really a threat to Jonathan's own position and future. Do you accept people in your life as they are, or do you try to make them be something? You try to manipulate, and you'll only really care for them if they're this way or that way, and you're trying to, to figure out how you can make them a certain way. It's a dangerous thing to say, I'll be a friend as long as you do this and that, and it works out by mani the manipulation that I'm doing. Accepting someone as they are is a very Christ-like quality. Doesn't mean you leave them there, but it does mean you're ready to walk forward with them, but you accept them as they are. Maybe someone irritates you because of their political opinions or their outlook on something else or their personality or how they behaved in a certain situation. True friends start with this foundation of accepting you as you are. That means they're interested in you, not just themselves. Dale Carnegie, who's famous for the course and the book, How to Win Friends and Influence People, said you can make more friends in two months by becoming interested in other people than you can in two years by trying to get other people interested in you. Someone who accepts you as you are, they're interested in you and who you are now and, and what God has for you down the road. 
Do you accept people as they are? Do you have people around you who accept you as you are? Secondly, true friends want God's best for you, even when that means they may miss out on something. Again, the example of Jonathan. When Saul gets jealous of David and the success he has and that God has appointed him to be the next king, Saul tries to kill David. We looked at that earlier in the the, the series on the life of David. We saw how Saul chased him everywhere. And Jonathan shows up in their final meeting together. We get this glimpse again of their friendship and we see that Jonathan wants the very best for David even though he's gonna miss out on something so special as being the king of Israel, getting that that position, that power, that prestige, that success, that wealth. We read in 1 Samuel 23, 1 Samuel 23 and verse 14, David now stayed in the strongholds of the wilderness and in the hill country of Ziph. Saul hunted him day after day, but God didn't let Saul find him. One day near Horish, David received the news that Saul was on the way to Ziph to search for him and kill him. Jonathan went to David and encouraged him to stay strong in his faith in God. He wants God's best for him. Do you have friends in your life that encourage you to stay strong in your faith in God? Don't be afraid, Jonathan reassured him. My father will never find you. You are going to be the king of Israel and I will be next to you as my father Saul is well aware. So the two of them renewed their solemn pact before the Lord. Then Jonathan returned home while David stayed at Horish. Look, I want God's best for you. You're gonna be the next king. You're gonna be the next king and I'm gonna be standing right next to you. What a friend in Jonathan David has. Do you have people around you who are looking out for God's best in your life? Even if it means they might miss out on something? Even if that means they might have to sacrifice something? Are you that kind of friend in anybody else's life? It's very easy for us in our current modern culture and the division and kind of the stir of our culture and with social media and all the different things that have been going on, politics and all, it's very easy for us to be in enemy mode and kind of be in this position where we're ready to fight, to make a posting against someone else's posting and just that that person's this and we almost dehumanize each other with falling into enemy mode. I was struck by a story earlier this week when um, in Poland an international competition of weightlifting took place. It involved a number of countries around the world and it was really some of the preparation to determine who's gonna end up going to the Olympics next year in Paris. And uh, the bronze winner was, was from Iran and the uh, silver winner was from Israel and as they were on the, the platform receiving uh, their accolades, they were, they were then dismissed and the Iranian the Iranian competitor in this weightlifting competition turned to the Israeli competitor and shook his hand. What an incredible thing. These are two countries where there's a lot of enmity and Iran is determined to destroy Israel. And and so it was quite a picture to see this man stop and shake the hand of an Israeli. Well, the next day, Iran announced that that weightlifter from Iran will never ever again compete in Iran's name totally removed from any competitions, never to play in any sports and represent the country in any way because he shook the hand of their enemy. And we can look at that and and be appalled and just say, what is going on in the world? And we know nations have been kind of at conflict for, for as old as time is. And we can look at that and say, that's just crazy with something like that. But many of us get caught in the same thing. 
We get trapped in enemy mode. And I think the more entrenched we get with an attitude that we're against people and we're fighting, and we may even be representing the truth, but we get into the spirit that, that we're going to destroy our enemies and defeat them. Jesus said, love your enemies and pray for those who treat you poorly. He didn't say, unless, dot, 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 dot. He said, love your enemies. And yet it's easy to fall into enemy mode. Last weekend, I came across a book that I decided to read this week and love this book. It's called Escaping Enemy Mode by Jim Wilder and Ray Woolridge. It's from a Christian perspective, but it goes deep into the neuroscience about how our own brain pathways can get rewired and deeply entrenched and we have to do things to kind of get beyond some of that deep entrenchment in our neurological system. You know, we've heard today about how someone who has a stroke is treated differently than it used to be. It used to be if someone had a stroke and we realized that what happened in their brain shut off the communication that helped them move, say, their left side. It used to be that we'd say, well, those connection points have walls now, and so that person can't move, and we'll do some things, but we can't do very much. Now we know that it's not just a physical thing, that those walled off areas where connections were cut off that stopped that motion on one part of the body, that through therapy, you can not just find the physical release, but in the neurological system, you can, uh, through therapy and physical therapy, you could actually see those neurological pathways open up in a different direction. It's like those impulses get rerouted. And that a person then can begin to move their hand even more because there's a rerouting that takes place in the neurological responses of the brain. But science is now showing, and this book does a great job at this, shows the science behind, even we can get into enemy mode and react and be triggered by other people and, and begin to villainize other people to the point that we don't see them through the eyes of Christ and we don't see them with the compassion of Christ because it gets so deeply entrenched in our neurological system. Now, I personally enjoyed this Christian perspective in this book and some of the neurological science behind it. I kind of geeked out on that. Uh, we do have copies of this book available in the bookstore you can get. And hopefully some of you are like me and you'll just enjoy that because I just think the concepts here are so important for us to understand. It's been easy in this season in the world to just get entrenched in enemy mode and we need to escape that. Another concept in this book is the idea of refriending, that as we begin to see maybe we are trapped in enemy mode and we're, we're on this combative path all the time, it can even come into our marriages and into our work relationships, it talks about how we need to purposely refriend. And as we purposely refriend, we are also, God just wired our brains as such as we intentionally refriend people, those neurological pathways get rerouted so that more and more our response is to show love to people who might consider themselves our enemy. A couple of things that this book talks about that just grabbed my attention when it came to thinking about God's best for other people. The book says the trouble is that Enemy mode produces relational blindness and keeps us from seeing people as fellow humans with dignity and value. A brain in enemy mode is all about the win. Enemy mode lacks compassion. Enemy mode lacks attachment. Enemy mode fights for status. The book says enemy mode is all about the other person losing and that brings us satisfaction. We click into enemy mode when we're posting online, we're discussing politics or we're discussing faith and, and we get into this combative spirit. And it can be very dangerous. But again, I tell you, that idea of refriending, I think, is found in the very life and example of Christ. The great part of refriending is that 
my best self attracts friends and my friends bring out my best self. Lasting friendships are not based upon holding all the same opinions. Friendships last because we build joy. We discover what is best in one another. We escape enemy mode quickly, refriend, and find our way back to joy together. Maybe you've gotten yourself entrenched in enemy mode. Some politician shows up on TV and, well, man, you just freak out because they represent something. Maybe there's somebody at work that you know their opinions about something going on at work that you just totally disagree with. and They just walk down the aisle and you just, oh. Can I encourage you? I think one of the most basic things you do to help yourself refriend with the people around you, and you can even do this with your spouse because our spouse should be our very best friend. It's just in your own mind when you're, you're feeling worked up or that there's, there's this angst against that person. It's just to stop in your own mind and say, you are not my enemy. When you read that post, say, you are not my enemy. Even if you are my enemy, Jesus tells me to love you. In some cases, it may get into a dialogue and things are getting a little heated and you may need to say to someone, you know what? I gotta remind myself, you are not my enemy. Jonathan could have made David his enemy like his father Saul did because he was gonna miss out on something, but he wanted God's best for his friend. Maybe this week, as you're reading things online or you receive a text for some, from someone or, or you're engaging with someone at a personal level, you just need in your own mind to say, okay, I do this often, I say, Sean, this person is not your enemy. And if they think they're your enemy, you're supposed to love them anyway. That will help us refriend. Thirdly, true friends stick by you no matter what, even when they could be in a more comfortable place. Now, if you want to turn your Bible to 2 Samuel 15, we're going to look at the time when David has to leave Jerusalem and he goes into exile in what is now today modern Jordan, outside the boundary of Israel, because his son Absalom, over four years, planned a coup, and as he executes that coup against his own father David, David doesn't want the battle to take place in Jerusalem, so he leaves Jerusalem so their forces can battle elsewhere, and Absalom then moves into Jerusalem. And in 2 Samuel 15, we have the next three points about true friends as we look at a number of friends in David's life who greet him as he's fleeing from Jerusalem. And he's discouraged and feels like he's in defeat and he has to flee from his own son rebelling and trying to take his throne. And we have here the example of Ittai, the Gittite. How'd you like to be called Ittai the Gittite? <laughs> but he's a friend of David who sticks by David no matter what, even when he could be in a more comfortable place. It's not about me being comfortable when it comes to friendships. It's about being there for each other, sticking by that person no matter what. Now, to be a Gittite means he is from Gath. Who's the famous guy from Gath? Goliath. So Ittai is a Philistine from the capital city of Gath, the same hometown as Goliath. But there were some Philistines, even in recent days prior to what we read in 2 Samuel 15, who had switched to David's side and become loyal to David, and Ittai is one of those. We read in 2 Samuel 15, verse 16, so the king and all his household set out at once he left no one behind except 10 of his concubines to look after the palace. The king and all his people set out on foot, pausing at the last house to let all the king's men move past to lead the way. There were 600 men from Gath, so there's 600 of them, who had come 
with David along with the king's bodyguards. So David is moving out of Jerusalem and all these folks are in this entourage fleeing before Absalom comes into town. Then the king turned and said to Ittai, a leader of the men from Gath, why are you coming with us? Go on back to King Absalom, for you're a guest in Israel, a, a foreigner in exile. You're already in exile. You didn't need to go to exile with me. Absalom has no beef with you. You'll be safe, maybe even safer in Jerusalem. Go back to where it's safe for you. Why are you going with me? You arrived only recently, and should I force you today to wander with us? I don't even know where we'll go. I'm not sure where I'm going. Go on back and take your kinsmen with you, and may the Lord show you his unfailing love and faithfulness while you're back there in Jerusalem, even while Absalom's there. But it I said to the king, I vow by Jehovah God, the Lord, and by your own life that I will go wherever my Lord the king goes, no matter what happens, whether it means life or death. David, I'm your friend. I'm in this with you no matter what. I'm going with you. David replied, all right, come with us. I like that. All right, I need friends like you. So Ittai and all of his men and their families went along. This is someone who says, life or death, I'm with you. I'm in this no matter what. Someone who said, a good friend knows all your stories. A best friend helped you write them. Ittai says, you're gonna go through some experiences. Some stories are gonna be written. I'm gonna be there writing them with you. I care about you, no matter what, I'm with you, even if I could go back and be in a more comfortable place. Are you that kind of friend? Do you have those kind of friends? Right now, just stop and think of the two or three closest friends you have in life. Maybe you even need to name them. Here's Bob, there's Susie, here's Bill. Just think of the two or three, write them down on a piece of paper, or take your fingers out and make sure you think of them, two, three closest friends you have. Then can I encourage you to email them, call them, or right now, right where you are, text them. I know you can do more than listen to me and uh, you can do more than that and a couple of things at the same time because I see the, the blue glow from the crowd every week. It just is there. You're checking Facebook, you're checking scores, you're emailing, you're catching up. I get it. And it seems like you're able to keep up with me. Some of you who are sleeping, I get it. You can sleep, but when you're sleeping, you're not generally able to keep up with me. Because I just encourage you to take your phone out and those two or three friends and just text them and say, thank you for being my friend. Now I feel like breaking out in the theme to the Golden Girls. Uh, thank you for being my friend. Just text that to them, those two or three people, and genuinely mean it. You have people in your life who stick with you through thick or thin. As Ittai said, life or death, I'm with you, David. Number four, true friends do whatever you ask them to do, even when that might put them at great risk. True friends ask, do whatever you ask them to do, even when that might put them at great risk. Now we come across two priests, Zadok and Abiathar. When David first went on the run from King Saul, Abiathar joined him early, then Zadok. These are friends who've been with him for decades now. They were with him when he was on the run from the king. They've been with him as king. They had been helping lead the worship in Jerusalem. David had brought the Ark of the Covenant into Jerusalem as he established Jerusalem as this shining city on the hill where all the nations would hear of Jehovah God, the God of Israel. The Ark of the Covenant represented the, the express presence of God on planet Earth. And these priests are mentioned in the friends uh, of David. 
And, and they're willing to do what he asks, even if that puts them at great risk. We read in 2 Samuel 15 again, picking up at verse 23. Again, David is leaving Jerusalem. Absalom's gonna be coming in. Everyone cried loudly as the king and his followers passed by. They crossed the Kidron Valley and then went out toward the wilderness. Zadok and all the Levites also came along carrying the Ark of the Covenant of God. They set down the Ark of God and Abiathar offered sacrifices until everyone had passed out of the city. The idea here is they believe that by having the Ark of the Covenant with them, then the presence of God was with David and that will help him fight back against Absalom and reclaim his throne. Then the king instructed Zadok to take the Ark of God back into the city. If the Lord sees fit, David said, he will bring me back to see the Ark and the tabernacle again. I'll come back to the city if that's God's will. But if he is through with me and he wants Absalom to be king, then let him do what seems best to him. Let God be God, take the Ark back. That's the right thing to do. We read, then the king also told Zadok the priest, look, here's my plan. You and Abithar return quietly to the city with your son Ahimaaz and Abithar's son Jonathan, and I will stop at the shallows of the Jordan River and wait here for a report from you. So Zadok and Abithar took the ark of God back to the city and stayed there. He says to them, you guys go back quietly in as if you've never left, and when Absalom comes, You'll start to hear things that are going on and what he's planning and how he's planning to fight my forces. Then you send reports back. I'll just linger down by the Jordan River in the desert before I cross over into the other land and to uh, outside the boundaries of Israel. But I'll wait for your report. He's asking them to do something that, can, that had a lot of risk to it. They were to go back and act as if they'd never sided with David and they're with Absalom and send these reports. They put themselves at risk and they do what he asks because they are his friends. Friends do things for one another. They show up in those times of need and do things to help one another, even when there is great risk involved. There was great risk for Zadok and Abiathar. Jesus himself, in the upper room with his disciples the night before he was crucified, would say, greater love has no one than this, to lay down one's life for one's friends. He would then, in that same discussion there in that upper room, last supper setting, say, and you are my friends. The next day they would see him lay down his life for them as he went to the cross. They, see, they would see his body placed in the grave. They'd see him raised from the dead. Now the scriptures describe us from the time we're born as being at enmity with God. There's a brokenness and we all need a savior because of our sin and our fallenness. And Jesus says, we are his friends, and he came to lay down his life for us so that we could have a permanent friendship with him now and forever through the forgiveness he offers through what he did on the cross. And if you know Jesus as your savior and you've rested your faith in him, then you have been forgiven of your sins and you are permanently his friend and you can walk with him in life today and you will walk with him in eternity. But if you haven't come to that place where you've rested your faith in God, then there's still this brokenness. You're still at enmity with God. But he came and said, I want to make you my friends. I, I lay my life down for you. Rest your faith in Jesus so you can have a relationship with God now and forever. I'll be in the lobby. I'd love to chat with you about that. Have somebody on our team chat with you. If you're, if you're online or you're in the room and you want to communicate something right now, you can just text the name Jesus in the body of the text to 58568, the number 
on the screen. Just put that number in the two section and in the body of the text, just say Jesus and we'll, we'll develop a conversation with you and we'll communicate with you immediately. Follow up as the week goes. You can also come down front. Our prayer and care team come down after every service to pray with you about any need. You can meet them down here and ask them, how can I know that I am an eternal friend of God that, through Jesus? It's so important for us to understand that Jesus laid down his life for us. And to be a friend who's willing to take great risk for another friend is to live and love like Jesus. We need to be friends like that, and we need friends in our lives who are like that. Again, that's why we're encouraging you to sign up and join a small group where you can speak into someone's life, and they can speak into your life and be true friends together in the journey ahead in the Lord. Number five, true friends, weep when you weep, even when your pain isn't their pain. Do you have somebody who just because you're hurting, they feel that pain? They hurt when you hurt? A true friend hurts when you hurt. They weep when you weep, even when your pain isn't their pain. The example of this friend in David's life is Hushai the Archite. Again, continuing in 2 Samuel 15, we see this, this friend who again meets David as he's leaving Jerusalem and fleeing for his life. David walked up the road to the Mount of Olives, weeping as he went. This is that road that the Jerusalem would be behind him. He's walking up the road to the top of the Mount of Olives. It's the road Jesus came down on what we call Palm Sunday there, just outside Jerusalem. His head was covered and his feet were bare as a sign of mourning. And all the people were with him, who were with him covered their heads and wept as they climbed the hill. When someone told David that his advisor Ahithophel was now backing Absalom, David prayed, O oh Lord, let Ahithophel give Absalom foolish advice. One of his senior advisors, Ahithophel, has traded sides and is siding with Absalom. And he says, Lord, let him give terrible advice to Absalom. When David reached the summit of the Mount of Olives where people worship God, Hushai, the archite, was waiting there for him. Hushai had torn his clothing and put dirt on his head as a sign of mourning. He is there mourning, grieving, weeping with David. It's not his pain, but it is David's pain, and he is a good friend. But David told him, if you go with me, you'll only be a burden. <laughs> Hushai, come on. I don't need another mouth to feed in my exile here. Return to Jerusalem and tell Absalom, I will now be your advisor, O king, just as, your father's, as I was your father's advisor in the past. Then you can frustrate the encounter Ahithophel's advice. Remember, the one guy's already, senior advisor's already gone over to the side of Absalom. And he says, Hushai, what I need you to do is act like you're going to advise Absalom, just like Ahithophel. And yet, when Ahithophel says, go this way, you tell him, no, 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 go this way. And then we'll know where he's going and we'll defeat him. Oh, uh, then it says, uh, picking up, uh, then you can frustrate and counter Hithophel's advice. Zadok and Abiathar the priest will be there. Tell them about the plans being made in the king's palace and they will send their sons, Ahimaaz and Jonathan, to tell me what is going on. And I love this next phrase. So David's friend, Hushai, returned to Jerusalem, getting there just as Absalom arrived. He meets him weeping in pain, with David, David knows it. He says, here's how you can help me. True friends weep when you weep. They laugh when you laugh, as the New Testament talks about, rejoicing with those who rejoice and weeping with those who weep. So David's friend, Hushai, he was a faithful friend. Do you feel the pain of those who are in your life as your friends? Do others have that kind of relationship with you? 
Sixth, true friends serve you when you need to be served, even when you feel it isn't necessary. They serve you when you need to be served. And we're talking about practical things. They do little practical things for you when you need it. Three friends show up uh, as David arrives in that foreign land where he's going to live in exile in a little town called Mahanaim. The three friends are Shobi, Makir, and Barzillai. 2 Samuel 17, verse 27, we see these friends show up when David is now in exile in this foreign land. When David arrived in Mahanaim, he was warmly greeted by Shobi, son of Nahash, who came from Rabbah of the Ammonites, and by Makir, son of Amiel from Lodabar. Makir's the guy who'd been keeping Jonathan's son, Saul's grandson, who was lame in his legs, Mephibosheth. He'd been keeping him kind of in hiding in a place called Lodabar, Remember, Lodabar means a place of nothingness, <laughs> desolate place. He shows up, and Brazili of Gilead, who's 80 years old at the time we learn later, shows up from Rogalim. They brought sleeping mats. These three guys show up with sleeping mats, cooking pots, serving bowls, wheat and barley, flour and roasted grain, beans, lentils, honey, butter, sheep, goats, and cheese, for David and those are with him. For they said... These three guys, Shobi, Makir, and Barzillai said, you must all be very hungry and tired and thirsty after your long march through the wilderness. True friends will serve you when you need to be served. Even when maybe you say it isn't necessary. Can I just encourage you? It's funny, in my ministry, I've noticed over the years how many people who um, are very kind at showing up and caring for other people won't let people care for them. What is that? You know the blessing that comes from being there for someone else when they're hurting and serving them. Don't rob somebody else of the blessing of being there for you. David could have said, hey, no, we, we're fine. We're here in Mahanaim. We brought some stuff with us. But he welcomes this because they serve him in very practical ways. These are the kind of friends you want to have in your life. This is the kind of friend you want to be. Leslie works next door in the Learning Center at Oaks Christian and the school year just got started and there were a couple of busy days and I had a busy long day and somebody in our small group found out that they'd be very busy for us and so they showed up and, and brought us some food from a local restaurant because they're friends who spoke into our life. Again, that's a part of what being in a small group, having people around you who, who care about you, it, it's a way in which True friends express their friendship. They serve you when you need to be served. Do you do that for others? Do you let others do that for you? Or are you one of those people, no, no, I don't want any attention, I don't want any prayer, I don't want any help. No, you're robbing others of a blessing. We should be serving one another in our friendships. Seventh and finally, true friends tell you when you're wrong. They tell you when you're wrong, even, if, even when you don't want them to. I've had people on our staff here who have been friends who at times have to sit me down and say, you know what you said in that room upset some people. You know what you said here or what you did there or you need this. And I've had friends sit down and tell me when I was wrong. I haven't always liked that. But to have friends who are willing to speak to leadership, truth, to power, if you will, is very important for all of us. I've had friends in my past who've been that way, people in my personal life, not just on the staff team with whom I serve, We've got to be willing to tell a friend when they're wrong. Speaking the truth in love, as Ephesians talks about. Nathan the prophet was that way for David. When David had sinned against Bathsheba and Uriah, God sent Nathan 
Finally, when he said to David, you are the man, you have committed this, this, this egregious sin, David said, I've sinned against the Lord. Nathan was his friend, and Nathan spoke into David's life, according to 2 Samuel 12. Joab, the general, who, who was the general of David's armies, who's an interesting friend of David's, because sometimes he's very loyal and does great things, other times he's out for his own self-interest. He killed Absalom when David told him not to kill him. David has this mixed relationship with, he knows, with Joab, and he knows Joab wants power, and he senses that Joab even would like to be the king after him. They're cousins, but they got this mixed relationship. We'll see next week that in the final words of David, he, he says to Solomon, walk with the Lord, be obedient to his word, shepherd his people, and kill Joab. We'll talk about why he said that next week, but Joab is this unique friend. We've all got some of these kind of friends in our lives, right? They've got strengths and weaknesses. But Joab is willing to speak to David when he's wrong. After Absalom was defeated, David's still in Mount Ahim, and the, the, the armies are coming back to where he is. There's great celebration because he's king again. He can return to Jerusalem. The soldiers are excited. They've won the victory. But remember, David is grieving over his son. We read in 2 Samuel 18, verse 33, the king was overcome with emotion. He went up to the room over the gateway and burst into tears. And he went and he cried, oh, my son Absalom, my son, my son Absalom, if only I had died instead of you. Oh, Absalom, my son, my son. And he's, he's just so distraught. Word soon reached Joab that the king was weeping and mourning for Absalom. As all the people heard of the king's deep grief for his son, the joy of that day's victory was turned into deep sadness. They crept back into the town that day. These are the soldiers. As though they were ashamed and had deserted in battle. The king covered his face with his hands and kept on crying, Oh, my son Absalom, oh, Absalom, my son, my son. Then Joab went to the king's room and said to him, We saved your life today. And the lives of your sons, your daughters, your wives, and your concubines, yet you act like this, making us feel ashamed of ourselves. You seem to love those who hate you and hate those who love you. You have made it clear today that your commanders and troops mean nothing to you. It seems that if Absalom had lived and all of us had died, you would be pleased. Now go out there and congratulate your troops. For I swear by the Lord Jehovah that if you don't go out, not a single one of them will remain here tonight then you'll be worse off than ever before. Uh, that's kind of taking it straight at King David, isn't it? Get up and go thank your troops. So the king went out and took his seat at the town gate, and as the news spread throughout the town that he was there, everyone went to him. Joab spoke truth to David. Good friends will tell you when you're wrong. Bad friends will just enable your bad behavior and your sin. Do you have those kind of friends in your life? Are you that kind of friend to anybody else? We need to surround ourselves with the right kind of friends. Proverbs 27, 6 says, Faithful are the wounds of a friend, but the kisses of an enemy are deceitful. When a friend wounds us, speaking the truth in love, that's a good thing. We need that. We need to be open to that. It's not easy and we don't want it, but we need to be ready to welcome and receive that. We need to surround ourselves with true friends people who accept us as we are, who want God's best for us, stick by us no matter what, do what we ask them to do, weep when we weep, serve when we need to be served. Tell us when we're wrong. We also need to be the same kind of friend for others. 
We need to have the right kind of people around us. C.S. Lewis said the next best thing to being wise oneself is to live in a circle of those who are. Are you a true friend, anyone? We need to be true friends. These examples in David's life are a great reminder. Jesus was a true friend to his disciples. And if we're gonna live in love like Jesus, we need to have the qualities of Christ and his friendship toward others. Now, I think you recognize, we all recognize, we're headed into one of those seasons again, right? Where it's possible to get very divided, to get upset on things that people post, to not like things that we see on TV, to get angry in conversations at work or with our friends. Everybody agree we're entering that season? I mean, after all, how many of you are USC fans? How many of you are UCLA fans? Yes, it's football season again. We're at that time of year where there's a lot of discussion about the other side. I got news for you, both of them are terrible. It's Notre Dame all the way. <laughs> I grew up 15 minutes, 10 to 15 minutes from the Golden Dome and I've been a Notre Dame fan my whole life. I have a class that I have to take in Chicago for one week in the middle of October. It happens Leslie and I are gonna be in South Bend that weekend before, October 14th. We got tickets to watch Notre Dame destroy the Trojans. <laughs> there are fun things, you know, that kind of stuff. Although, ask the people in Alabama about some dead trees, how that can be taken too far. You thought I was going a different direction with that, didn't you? Because we all know where the divisions are. But our friendships should break those barriers, our bonds in Christ, and our understanding that to live in love like to live in love like Jesus means we love our enemies and we pray for those who aren't kind to us. We need to have some true friends who help us do that well and we need to be true friends who help others do that well. Would you pray with me? Father, we may not be able to solve the problems our friends are facing. We, not be, we may not even be able to explain to them why you're allowing it in their lives but may we be willing and ready to sit with them in it to walk faithfully with them through it, that we can be true friends who live in love like Jesus in our relationships, in our home, at work, in the neighborhood, online, everywhere. May we be people who reflect Jesus in the way we handle our friendships. Father, help us to get out of enemy mode. Help us to love like Jesus loved, even while we live out the truth of Christ. May people who know us be able to see Jesus in and through us by the way we handle our relationships with other people, even our friends. We pray in Jesus' name, amen.